0: Text that we will be considering this morning, learning from, being instructed by, specifically chapter 8, verse 7 through chapter 9 and verse 10. There are certain cuts of meat that you can place upon a hot grill and you can, in very short period of time, have a wonderful, juicy, tender steak. And I open with that illustration now because we're not as close to lunch as we will be at the end where I might lose you. might be too much of a distraction, not unlike cell phones going off, which would be a great opportunity now to silence those. And then there are other cuts of meat. Uh, meat that uh, were you to take it, out of the package and put it on the grill, it would not cook properly. It would be tough in one part, maybe even raw and burnt on the other. It doesn't lend itself to that kind of preparation. And in some ways this morning, uh, the text that we're going to be looking at in in Hebrews is kind of like that second cut. And what we need to do is we need to take it and we need to place it in the slow cooker. Because if you take that and you place it in the slow cooker and put a little bit of uh, beef stock in there and maybe some herbs and maybe some cracked pepper and a little bit of salt and you just set that thing on low or medium, then you can go to church and you can go to Sunday school and you can go to church and you can hang out and fellowship a little while afterwards. And then by the time you get home, that meal is ready. The aroma is filling the kitchen. And you take the lid off of that slow cooker, and you've got a beautifully prepared piece of meat. It just falls off the bone. It just melts in your mouth. We're going to take the section in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, and we're going to place it in kind of the slow cooker of the old covenant redemptive history that leads up to it. And the reason that I'm going to do that is because we really can't understand the instruction coming to us from this part of Hebrews until we understand the importance of covenant. So if you're looking for one main word that's going to be frequently addressed here in this sermon, it's going to be the word covenant. Think about the word covenant. What do you think of when you think of the word covenant? Now, most of you would probably say, well, I think of the word contract. I think of a deal that is made between two people. Uh, there are terms that are written down, there are services rendered, or there are items that are provided. Maybe there's a loan given. And we go back and forth with this contract. I'd like to offer this clarification this morning. I don't think that's a truly adequate understanding of the word covenant. At least not the way the Bible uses it. In fact, the way that the Bible uses the word covenant it is much more relational. It's much less like a contract between two people and more like a covenant between two lovers. It's more like marriage than it is like buying a car. It's not something based purely on the reciprocal behavior of the other person. You see, a contract says, I'm going to do my part if you do your part. But if you don't do your part, then I'm not going to do my part. Whereas a real relational covenant says, I'm going to do my part that I vowed, even if you don't do your part. And you're going to do your part even if I don't do my part. And my commitment to you is that we are committed to this covenant. That's why in, in a marriage ceremony, I always try to emphasize the fact that a covenant is really a covenant that is made ultimately with God. You see, I've heard so many times people say, well, you two people, you're getting married here together, and you're making a covenant together in the eyes of God and these people. And I I like to say, no, you're making a covenant to God in the eyes of each other and these people. Because your covenant faithfulness needs to be anchored in something greater than the performance of your partner. And so as we look at covenant here, we're seeing that it's going to be a decision that God makes to covenant with his people. And it's going to be seen through several covenant characters. So if you're taking notes, there's going to be covenant characters Three in particular. We're going to look at Noah. We're going to look at Abraham. We're going to look at Moses. And then the fourth one is really going to be a bridge, and that is David. So Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Now, before I even begin, I want to clarify something, because some of you who maybe like to read a lot of theology are asking yourselves, well, what kind of covenant study is this going to be? And let me say right from the outset, I'm not going to address the covenants that are not explicitly, in my opinion, laid out in Scripture. So we're not going to talk about the covenant of works, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace. That could be for another time. And I'm also choosing to exclude, though it was close, he almost made it in, what's perceived many times to be a covenant with Adam. Because I really think that would fit a different study better. So I'm going to focus just on the way that the word covenant was used in relationship with Noah, Abraham, Moses and then with David, and ultimately, as we'll see in Christ, okay? Let's back up. So how does covenant fit into this idea of the story of redemptive history? Well, we go back to Noah, because it was in Genesis chapter 6 that the word first surfaces in our English Bibles, or in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was back then when God says, I'm looking out at all of creation and all of the people, and I see that everybody is doing wickedness continually, and I'm just going to wipe them all out. The entire mission has has failed. The entire project has gone south. I mean, there is nothing but wickedness everywhere. But he, he spares a man, a man named Noah. And it is true that Noah is described in Genesis 6 as being a man who was righteous, a man who was blameless. But Noah didn't earn that in God's eyes. Noah didn't live a life so blameless that God said, well, you're not worthy of judgment. As a matter of fact, Noah was very much worthy of judgment because he was a sinner like everybody else, and so was his wife, and so was his children. But God saw fit to rescue Noah and Mrs. Noah and their three sons and those three daughters-in-law, and they are brought into the ark And the ark is then what receives, as it were, the very wrath of God poured out, most literally, through the rains upon the earth. But because they were inside, Peter says, baptized into the ark, the wrath of God fell upon the ark and not upon Noah and his family. Here's what a covenant is. Jot this down. A covenant is a promise to save Those who are worthy of judgment. It's a gracious promise to save those who are worthy of judgment. That's the most simple way I can think of to describe what a covenant is. And a covenant is what runs through all of redemptive history and all of the scriptures. There are lots of themes we could use to tie the Bible together. We could talk about prediction and fulfillment, for example. Uh, We could talk about uh, deliverance. We could talk about redemption. But today, I want to talk about covenant. Covenant runs through the scriptures. If you don't understand the covenants, my friends, I'm, I'm concerned you won't really understand how the Bible fits together. I mean, how many of you have wondered sometimes how the Bible fits together? Put up your hand if you've wondered, how does this Bible fit together? I know many of you. They, all, they look like these separate books that somebody just, just put together in some random order. They're not chronological. They're not alphabetical. They're not really thematic. In fact, if you do studies of of the history of how the canon was put together, you'll see that the Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Old Testament scriptures, weren't even in the order that they are in our Bible. In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, they were in a different order. It was the Torah at the beginning, and then it was the prophets in the middle, and the writings at the end. But this is how Jesus understood the order of the Old Covenant books, we get our Bibles now and they're, and they're set up in a certain order and we've got the law at the beginning and, and the books of Moses and then, you know, we move into some of the history books and then there's some literature that would be called poetic sprinkled in there and prophets major and minor. And then right there, towards the end, two-thirds through our Bible, we have this separating page and it says the New Testament. Do you have one of those in your Bible? The New Testament. Now, I, I so I'm going to just share something with you personal story here, okay? So, we're out yesterday at, at one of my son's surf competitions, and we're talking to some church members who were there, and I was telling them a little bit about what was going on today in the sermon, and I said, I'm, I'm debating whether or not to do something for shock value. I thought I could literally take my Bible, and I could go to that page that says the New Testament, and I could rip it out, and I thought that would really get their attention, but it might be all you remembered for the whole rest of the sermon. So I'm not going to do that. Use your imaginations, because you could. It's okay. That part's not inspired. In fact, what does it do? It creates an artificial bifurcation in our Bible sometimes, like, oh, that's Old Testament, this is New Testament. No, there's one covenant truth that runs through the whole Scriptures. Everything either looks forward to or looks back upon the coming Messiah. And so when you look at Noah, Noah is the beginning. Noah is the first person to whom God says, I will make a covenant. In fact, if you want to jot this down in Genesis, specifically in chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's grace. Noah found favor, or favor found Noah. The grace of God upon an undeserving person promising them salvation when they deserve judgment just like everybody else. And so verse 18 of chapter 6 says, but I will establish, I will literally cause my covenant to stand up with you, and you shall come into the ark. That's your salvation. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Covenant, a gracious promise of salvation offered to those deserving of judgment. Well, who's the second covenant character? Well, if you, you fast forward a little while, you come across this man, Abram or Abraham. And Abraham, as you know, was also the person who received a covenant from God. We read about that earlier in Galatians 3. And Abraham's situation was a little bit different. God wasn't about to judge the world and saved Abraham. Instead, God was going to use Abraham to have dominion over the world. And he comes to this man who was living his normal pagan lifestyle uh, with his father, who was probably a moon worshiper based on his name, and he goes to him and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And if you look at Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, those are the key chapters. And he goes to this man and he says that, that I'm going to make a great nation out of you and this is going to be my covenant with you, my promise with you. And later on in chapter 15, he walks through the covenant, literally. He, he makes the covenant. He cuts the covenant. That's the Hebrew language. Write that down. You cut a covenant. You didn't write it. You cut it. So what does that mean? Well, imagine the drama of this. He sends Abram out to get a bunch of animals, from large to small. And he says, I want you to cut the animals in half. And one half of the animal goes on this side, and, and one half of the animal on that side. And they got progressively smaller, all the way down to these little birds, At that point, what would normally happen is that the lesser person would walk through that. They would say, I promise to do something for you, and if I don't, you may do this to me and my animals. This is the part where Abram or Abraham is supposed to walk through that. And right when he is about to, God puts him to sleep. He puts him to sleep, and um, based on what I can tell in Genesis 15, I'm not sure that Abraham heard everything God said to him. It's almost like as Abraham is sleeping, God leans over and he kind of whispers and he says, by the way, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, but you are going to become the servants of another and for 400 years you are going to be in captivity. But when the time comes, I'm going to move you out of there as a mighty nation. And just to prove my promise to you, God says, I'm going to show up in terms of the flame and the smoke and I'm going to walk through that bloody isle myself, and I'm going to covenant myself to you. Not only is it a matter of us both going through it, which would have been extreme because the greater king never did that, but he goes through alone saying, not only will I uphold my end of the bargain swearing in my own name, but I will also uphold your end of the bargain, and I know you won't be able to do it. And I know that you deserve to have this done for you. And so somehow in the end, God will make a way to not only uphold his side, but uphold your side and do it with justice, meaning that the full fury of his wrath will come down upon the guilty party. Now, the covenant with Abraham was obviously not aimed primarily at forgiving Abraham his sin because that wasn't the focus. In fact, if you go to Romans chapter 4, Paul says that there was no transgression before the law came. That wasn't really the point. So when does the law come? The law comes with the next individual, and that's Moses. Now, fast forward a little bit from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. Do you remember those four? That's how the family line went. Joseph, you'll remember, uh, through some rather unfortunate circumstances, found himself as uh, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. It wasn't exactly a straight line. He didn't exactly climb the ladder. Those of you who have sort of careers that aren't going anywhere, trust me, it's better than what Joseph went through. And look, look where he ended up. In God's providence, you just never know. But he ends up as the the most important person functionally in all of Egypt. And when the famine comes, he is able to bring the nation of Israel, which at that point was just 70 people, and bring them in to Egypt where they are kept safe. And for over 400 years, they are the ones who grow and multiply and expand to the point where when Moses comes on the scene, he actually leads the people out in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, not as 70 people, but as a mighty nation. Some people think maybe 2 million. And this is where the covenant story picks up again because he brings them out of Egypt. How did that happen? What well, happened because what we read in Exodus 12 is that when God decided to finally rescue his people, he did it through a series of plagues, and this is so fascinating. One after the other, between God and Pharaoh, using Moses and Aaron as intermediaries, and he says, let them go, and he says, I will, and then he doesn't, and then the plague comes back a second time, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, all the way through to the ninth. But then something, something really important happens at the tenth plague, and this is critical, At the 10th plague, the attention shifts, and it's no longer between God and Pharaoh with the Jews kind of looking in. It's now between God and everybody. Remember, he said that you all need to participate in this. You all need to take that lamb. You all need to to kill that lamb and, and roast it, and you roast it whole. The text says to leave the legs on and leave the entrails in. You roast that thing whole, and you eat it, and you eat it fully dressed because you're going to need to go. You've got to get ready to split. And you're going to eat that thing as a family, and you're going to get ready to go because when the Passover lamb is seen by the angel of death, it will pass over that home with the blood splattered on the outside of it. And the reality is, for those who didn't, the angel of death came and it killed that firstborn. You see, there was death in every house that night. But it was either the death of the firstborn or it was the death of the Lamb, right? It was the death of the firstborn or the death of the Lamb. Every home had death in it that night. And those Jews were then led out by Moses through the narrow streets of their little ghetto that they were forced into through the smell of smoke that wafted up from all of the leftover animal that hadn't been eaten last night that was being burned outside the tents. And it's very interesting that the place that God, through Moses, takes his people is not into Canaan. You see, Abraham was promised this land, and so you would think, well, this is how it's going to work. All these years in captivity, you're now a mighty nation. We're going to rescue you. We're going to bring you out of Egypt, and we're going to take you straight into Canaan. But he doesn't go to Canaan. What's the first stop on the road? Mount Sinai. You see, what God wants to show is that in his covenant program, after grace and redemption comes the law. Now, see, in our context, we tend to think of it the other way around. In fact, every other religion in the world inverts those. Law comes first, and then maybe redemption. You fix yourself up, and maybe then you're saved. You do enough good works, maybe then you, you, you earn something from God. Uh, you see, the beautiful picture of the covenant is that it's turned around, and first comes the redemption, the deliverance. I, I love the language in, in, in Isaiah, the mighty arm of God. It's this anthropomorphic language for God rolling up his sleeves. You ever seen those uh, pictures or movies where the guys are about ready to fight? They got their sleeves all you know down like this, and they're all buttoned up. And then, and then when the time comes, when it's like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna go after it. And it's what happens, you know? start doing this. I don't know if this helps. <laughs> Get the sleeves rolled up, right? And they're ready. It's the mighty arm of God. That's the land. I want you to have that visual picture. So when He smashes the enemies of His children, it's like that—the mighty arm of God, sleeve rolled up, ready to be involved. That happens prior to the, the giving of this law. But even with Moses, that covenant was listed out for him, not in a promise like it was to Noah to cover him, not not like in a promise like it was to Abraham to multiply him, but in a law written down on these tablets of stone given to Moses to give to the people, to hold them accountable to what God expected of them as his nation people. When you look at the Story of Noah and then Abraham and then Moses. You can't help but see God's active work in redemption. In the grace and then the law. In the obedient gratitude that the people were to show to God for all that he had done for them. When he introduces the law, remember this, he introduces the law by talking about himself. And he says, remember me, I'm the God that took you out of what? Egypt. Remember that. I'm giving you this now because of what I did for you. I'm not saying obey it so that I will do it for you. Now, this leads us to our fourth character, and this is really a bridge character, but it's an important one nonetheless, because if you look at the rest of the the story from there on, let's just consider what happens in our Bibles, just chronologically. So I said earlier, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Joseph takes the people down to Egypt. 400 years later, they come out under Moses. Well, it isn't too long after that, that the conquest happens with Joshua, and then the people are in their land, but they're constantly fighting their enemies because they're not big enough yet to take it all over. They haven't grown yet in order to cover everything so that they're not under attack all the time. And so, always there was this guerrilla warfare from these other nations that would come in. And the people would suddenly be in peril, and they would raise up from within themselves, by God's power, a judge. Remember the judges? That's why right after Joshua comes Judges. And Judges and, and Ruth, and these are periods of time when there was, there was no king in the land, just a judge. And so what happened is the people eventually got tired of that and they start crying out for a king. And really one of the last judges, if you will, is Samuel. And Samuel's discouraged by this because the people want a king, but in, in 1 Samuel 8:7, God says to Samuel, don't worry because these people haven't rejected you. They've rejected Who? me imagine the covenant that you make with somebody the covenant relationship you have with them the covenant faithfulness you expect from them and they turn on you and they reject you they break the covenant they say i don't want you i don't want this relationship i don't want to live in covenant fellowship with you and god says to samuel look this is not a good situation this this is this is not something that honors me but i will give the people what they're looking for, which is a king. Now, we know in God's great design and plan that through that king would come the Messiah, that through that line would come Jesus. But from Samuel's standpoint, he just thinks, well, the people have abandoned Yahweh, and they want a visible king. So they got Saul, and that didn't work out, and then David. And then after him came Solomon, and after him, a succession of rulers in the north and a slightly better group in the south. But it was really all the way until that kingdom divided and all the way through the division and then eventually the captivity in the north to Assyria, in the south to Babylon. And all of a sudden, the line appeared to be extinguished. Apparently, the covenant wasn't going to stand. But then out of nowhere, God turns the heart of a pagan king and invites the people to come back and reestablish in the land. And they did that about 400 years before Christ. Those are your history books. That's why you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And it was during these times, either before or during or after the exile, that you have your prophets writing. Your major prophets, we call them. Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, who also wrote Lamentations. Your minor prophets. They're the ones that go all the way in the last part of your Bible, those last 12, Hosea through Malachi. Malachi. But you see, God's plan is unfolding through all these people until the very end when there's this hope that the covenant could be revived and it happens when Jesus Christ comes on the scene and John the Baptist, the final Old Testament prophet, looks out at him and says, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Here he's come. In the line of David. The fulfillment of the covenant. And it was in Christ's perfect life That he lived out everything he needed to, his active righteousness. He was already by God perfect in his passive righteousness. But he completed all righteousness, including getting baptized. And this is what he tells John the Baptist. I'm getting baptized so I can fulfill all righteousness. So that all who put their faith in me will have every aspect of righteousness imputed to them. And then he can say with his disciples at the last Passover, the last one that ever needs to be celebrated, the last Passover you ever need to think about was the one that Jesus held with His disciples where He said, there is a new covenant now. And that new covenant is in my what? My blood. I'm the Lamb. And in that you see the great fulfillment of everything that Noah was looking for and Abraham and Moses and David It's in Him. Christ is the greater provision. Christ is the greater supplier of help and aid. Christ is the the greater rescue. He's the greater Lamb. He's everything that all of this pointed to. And what's so fascinating is that when you look at how the prophets in the Old Testament were trying to understand and put this together, one of the ones that did the most specific job with that was Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah predicts this many years before it happened, where in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, he explains the new covenant. And there are two aspects of that that we're going to study. The first one is that the new covenant was written on the heart, not on stone, and that the new covenant would result in your sins being blotted out and remembered no more. It was an internal law, And it was an absolute forgiveness. Now, this all serves as kind of the softening of this text, which I hope now will be easier to understand. So so let's lift our text uh, out of the the slow cooker, as it were, and, and let's just see if maybe it comes off the bone a little easier now. Take a look at what we have in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. This is God's Word for... If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they didn't continue in my covenant, so I showed them no concern. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, with the new one comes the better Noah, as we are baptized into him. The better Abraham, as we receive the personal, royal, spiritual, physical blessings. The better Moses, that the angel of death is now going to pass over us, not because of a lamb, but because of the lamb, and a better David. You see, Christ is Melchizedek. (laughs) Not literally, but he represents everything that Melchizedek foreshadowed. The great king, prophet, priest. And it's in this new covenant as predicted by Isaiah and Ezekiel, which we could get into in a future sermon, but definitely here in Jeremiah. And what I'd like to show you this morning, as we just unpack uh, this first section, and then the second one, is a very simple outline. The first one is that there is a covenant of love, and the second is that it's a covenant of blood. There's a covenant of love and a covenant of blood, and they're contrasted. As a matter of fact, what you're going to see is the solution before the problem. The solution is the covenant of love. The problem was the covenant of blood. But the covenant of blood pointed to the covenant of love. And we'll unpack that in the next little while here. So first of all, the covenant of love. Let's just look through this passage and explain it. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What's the the first covenant? That would have been the Mosaic covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I'm going to establish a new one. You see, he says it wasn't enough to just take them out of the land of Egypt and and give them the law and even bring them into the new land because there's more to it than that. Uh, This wasn't just a relocation process. Uh, This had to be a regeneration process. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you in verse 10. And notice what he says, I will put the laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they will be my people. You see, this covenant of love is a covenant of relationship. God is not saying to his people, I will do something for you if you do something for me. He's saying to them in this new covenant in Christ that through his love, he is going to take that law, his moral law, and he is going to write it on your heart and on your mind. It's going to become something that is a part of you. He literally through regeneration, changes you, recreates, brings life into the part of you that was dead, and therefore activates a will to follow him that wasn't there before. You see, he doesn't just take your will and enforce it. How many of you have ever been forced to do something? You know what it feels like. To do something against your will. I don't want to. You're born with a will, a stubborn will. If you don't believe that just have some children it's true isn't it and you are no different I think we forget that like we talk about our kids like yeah so were we you know your parents come over and they're kind of laughing You're like oh you don't believe how hard this is and they're like good I'm glad you're getting back some of what you did to me you notice that early on like long before they can talk or do anything else because they just are always trying to exert their will you try to put them in the car seat you know and they arch their back they don't want to go in well, when God saves somebody, He doesn't circumvent their will. He doesn't crush their will, break their will. He doesn't overwhelm their will. He gives them a new will. Part of regeneration is you're giving me a new heart. And I believe that means a heart that will desire Him, a heart that will believe, a heart that will have faith. And so here He says, I'm going to plant into my people this heart that will believe, that will follow, that will love me, and will know me. Look how, look how wonderful this is in its relationship. Verse 11. They don't have to teach one another to know God because they'll all know God. Verse 12, for I will be merciful. It's a word that only appears here and one other place, and the other use in the Gospels is very different. It's almost unique to here. It's literally, I will be propitious. It's not a word we use very often. He says, "I I will be so merciful that my mercy pays their price. That's what propitious means. You ever heard the word propitiation? All right. Put up your hand if you heard propitiation. So I'm not talking. Okay. So you're familiar with this. Propitiation. It means that you actually have the payment covered. It doesn't just mean pardon. It doesn't mean just mean you're 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 let off the hook. It's not getting pulled over and the cop says you're guilty, but I'll let you go this time with a warning. It's full payment. So when he says mercy, don't think mercy the way you and I show mercy, which is sometimes to show pardon. He shows mercy by paying the price completely and it's finished. That's the kind of mercy he's going to show to them in building this relationship. And I will show it towards their iniquities, literally their, their injustices. And I will remember their sins no more. And this is why the author can say then, in speaking of the new covenant, the one that came in Christ, he makes this old one obsolete. The old one's not necessary anymore. And in fact, it's obsolete and it's about to pass away. The author to the Hebrews is, is writing, I mean, possibly 20 years max before the temple is destroyed. There won't even be an option to go back to the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system. I mean, he's telling the Hebrews, don't you dare get persuaded and bewitched to go back into this whole thing about worshiping with sacrifices because not only is it going to be you abandoning the true faith and the gospel, but it's also going to be such a temporary victory because whatever you gain from that is going to be obliterated when Rome comes and destroys the temple and levels the whole temple mount. All of this obsolete system that's going on there in Jerusalem by 70 AD was completely gone. It had completely passed away. It was utterly pointless. Nobody ever debated it anymore. The the, the Samaritan woman at the well now understands what Jesus meant when he said, there will come a day when we're not going to worship on Mount Gerizim or on the mountain in Jerusalem because there won't be a point. Instead, everyone is going to worship in spirit and in truth. That spirit and in truth is what it means to worship because God has written his his love and his law and his will in your heart. It's a covenant of love. Secondly, though, there's also a covenant of blood mentioned here. And as I said, it's almost like the author gives us the solution and then the problem. He, He defines now why the old covenant doesn't work. This is why religion doesn't work. You could substitute this with any world religion that says you have to do something to earn God's favor, but for our purposes today, let's just look at what he's talking about, which is Judaism. Beginning in verse nine oh, I'm sorry, chapter nine, verse one. Let me read it, then we'll explain it. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered in all sides with gold, in which a gold urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Let's pause there for a moment. It's very important that the author says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Why do I draw your attention to that? Because even this author is saying, my point is not to go into some laborious description of every aspect of the furniture in the tabernacle. He's saying, if I get into that, you're going to miss the picture of the argument. Because we could spend weeks going through every single Piece of furniture in the tabernacle, and the whole point the author is making is that none of that matters anymore because it's gone. It's all in Christ. All you need to do is go into the back of your Bible and look at the maps and the diagrams, and you probably have one of a tabernacle. There were two sections, like he describes here. There was a section even outside of that where you brought your animal, and that animal was killed and it was burned, and you knew that somehow between you and God things were made right. And then there were places for the priests to do these other acts of worship and then they would go in through the the curtain or the veil and inside there would be the mercy seat which was the ledge on top of the ark and you had the two angels looking down upon it and onto there was sprinkled the blood with a hyssop branch. And that blood from that lamb once a year was put on there to be for the atonement of the people. That's his his only point in saying this. That's the illustration. And he says we could go on and on but we're not going to talk about that very much. Why? Because it's all gone. You see his point? Don't get bogged down in all these details. Don't impress yourself with how long it takes you to get through the book of Hebrews because you spend 27 sermons talking about this. Just because it takes a long time doesn't mean it's deep. In fact, you miss the point if you don't zoom out and see the big picture of what he's saying. So he says, I don't have time to go into this right now. You all know what I'm talking about, but let's pick up the story. Look at verse six. These preparations having thus been made, The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. Notice it. Not without taking blood. This was a blood covenant, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations, for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You see, the people understood that all of this ritual and all of this sacrifice was there as an indication that something had not yet arrived to complete it. There is something called planned redundancy. If you don't know what planned redundancy means, reach into your pocket and pick out your phone that you've silenced, and you are looking at an object that has built into it planned redundancy. What it means is that it was designed not to last. Literally, it was designed not to last. It was designed so that in a couple of years, it would either stop working well, or a new model would come out that would so impress you that you didn't want it anymore, or that if you keep upgrading it like they tell you to, before long, the entire software isn't supported and it just becomes a paperweight. How many of you experienced this before? How many of you have $1,000 paperweights in your office right now? Put up your hand. Yes, you do. Welcome to planned redundancy. We are all victims of it. Now go out and feel victimized. But imagine if that was your religion. Imagine if your religion was built that way. That's what Judaism was. Judaism, from the very beginning, was built on the premise that one day it would no longer be necessary. And any fascination and inclination back toward it, then or today, is unnecessary. It is gone. It's been finished. Who? In who? In Christ. He came to fulfill all of it. There's no residual value. It is a religious paperweight. Everything is in him now. And you notice that because here at the end, there are two key sections to zero in on. Take a look at it right at the end of what I just read. I want your eyes to fall upon these words that in the midst of all of this, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's the first thing. It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Imagine what it would be like if if you came into this service every Sunday and you walked out in doubt as to whether or not your sins were forgiven, that your conscience was not clean. If you're not a Christian here today, then it's important for me to explain to you that one of the things that we do is when we gather together, we worship God because we know that we are forgiven, that in Christ our sin has been dealt with. And we can walk away from this time uh, reminded of the gospel. That's why it's important to be in church every week, not just because we like to see you here, but because you need that. You need that regular weekly reminder that if you're in Christ, you are forgiven. Your conscience is by nature driven towards despondency over your own residual sin. And so for you, if you're not a Christian, what we celebrate here is not good works that we do to make ourselves feel better, but the one finished work he did that cleanses our conscience. You see, the Old Testament Jew, he knew that he was doing something that made him right with God, because that's what God had told him to do. He knows that there's forgiveness in this, and he knows that when the priest goes in once a year that even this person's unintentional sins were forgiven, but there is this lingering, nagging doubt that this is sufficient. He, he knew it wasn't totally adequate. S- something else had to be done. They were looking forward to another sacrifice, and that's what you have in Christ, and therefore in him your conscience is completely clear. And the second thing I want you to notice is at the very end, This entire system remained in place until the time of Reformation. We talk a lot about the Reformation around here, the time in the 1500s when the gospel was was rescued, essentially, from the church that had come to be known as the Roman Catholic Church, and people were able to then understand it truly and more clearly, and we celebrate that. That's the tradition that we are in here in this church. But that reformation was a much less important reformation than the one mentioned here. This reformation is the reformation that Christ brought when he took everything that that old system tried to do and completed it once and for all. You see, when he says to his disciples, there is a new covenant in my blood, he said it at a dinner table. And at that dinner table, there was something missing. And what was missing at that dinner table was the lamb. There's no mention of it. And yet, in reality, there was a lamb at the table. And that lamb was Christ himself. He says, I am the Passover lamb. I am what that lamb was pointing to. And so he can say to them that once and for all, there is a new covenant now being clearly explained to you, and it's in my blood, which means in my death, in my death and sacrifice. Every sin, past, present, future, everything that anyone has ever done that would separate them from God, if they put their faith in me, will be forgiven. If you've never heard that before, if that's a new concept to you, um, that might seem a little bit barbaric, wouldn't it? Um, maybe you're thinking that, I don't know if I want to be a part of a, of a religion that would, that would slaughter an innocent, an innocent person, or, or even innocent animals for that matter. And, and in some ways, it is harsh, and it is um, violent, but it's also necessary. Because for God to maintain His justice, He could not allow his mercy. To go without payment. For God to retain his justice, for God to be truly fair, he had to make sure that the penalty was paid. So we see this just in our own justice system. If you go into court and, and, and you've got a uh, complaint against somebody, and you have a legitimate complaint, and the evidence is there, and it's clear as day, and the judge renders a verdict against you that is unjust, you have the opportunity to appeal it. You go to a higher court And that higher court has the right to then look down on what the lower court did, and they can say, that's unjust. Well, what could be more unjust than allowing you and I to experience the glory of being in the presence of God forever and all of the joy and rest that comes from that if the sin that separated us from Him has not been paid? You see, God's justice is so pure, He can't just let you go. He can't just pardon it. He can't just say, I'll give you a warning. Instead, he had to send his son to live the life you should have lived, die the death you should have died, and then resurrect from the dead in a way you never could in order to give you a life that you could never achieve on your own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, which we read earlier, says he became the curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on that tree. Jesus became the curse. God the Father crushed the Son. The payment was not made to the devil, the payment was made to the Father to cover the righteous, just act of redemption. And so when you see it in that that light, though it's violent, though it's um, gruesome, and it is, perhaps you can see how it's warranted. And I hope you can see that it's something you should be thankful for. And it's something that you could never do on your own. It had to be the work of God on your behalf. If you are a Christian, I hope today is going to be a day where you reinforce for yourself the the majesty of that doctrine, the glory of that truth, and that you would do what I think the author hopes the Hebrew readers would do, and that is to never again be persuaded to go back to your dead religious ways, but instead to not only place your faith in Christ and Christ alone, but also to live in such a way as to show to others that you mean it. As the song says, my worth is not in what I own, there is nothing that we bring to the table. But as that song concludes, it's with this really wonderful line of this paradox of my worth and my unworthiness. You see, I wasn't chosen for salvation because I'm valuable. I wasn't chosen because I'm so special, because God just loved me so much, just couldn't bear to be without me. No. My worth comes from the price that was paid to purchase me. It's like a painting that somebody's willing to spend $450 million on, or a painting that you buy at Goodwill for a buck fifty. The value is not in the painting. The value is in what the person was willing to pay to get it. Your worth comes from Christ. And so the great paradox that we can sing is of my worth, yes, (laughs) and my unworthiness. It makes no sense that he would do that for me. But thankfully, brothers and sisters, he didn't make his decision based on what made sense. He did it based on his love and his grace and his mercy. poured out for you. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you for this truth, and I pray that today we would grow in our knowledge and appreciation of it. We acknowledge our unworthiness, not in order to disparage us as image bearers, certainly not to say that you were wrong in creating us, but rather to acknowledge that in our fallen state, in our reprobation, in our Enmity with you, in our hostility towards you, we deserve the wrath. We deserve to be outside the ark. We deserve to be the animals cut in two. We deserve to be those who are swallowed up in the sands of the wilderness. We deserve to be those who are cut off from you forever. But in your tender mercy and kindness, You have sent a substitute, and that substitute is willing and able to give us a pure, perfect conscience. May we cherish that and give you thanks for it. In your name we pray.